The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. The romantic poets of the late 18th and early 19th centuries have long fascinated us for the beauty and rich intelligence of their poetry, their dramatic personal lives, and the way that six of them in particular helped to define their era. They are often divided into two groups of three, which roughly speaking sit on two sides of a generational divide. Blake, Wordsworth, and Coleridge, born between 1757 and 1772, and Keats, Shelley, and Byron, who were born between 1788 and 1795. It was an age when poetry mattered, both to artists and to the public. For all the differences among the six, they all shared a belief in the power of poetry, that poetry helped to shape reality by fixing reality, or framing it, in a sense, interpreting it, It was a time when one could assert, in Shelley's famous phrase, that poets were the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Let's recall those birth dates again and that generational divide and put it in the context of history. In particular, the French Revolution of 1789, a seismic event for Europe and the world. Traditions were suddenly transformed, upended, institutions up for grabs. People took sides change was happening everywhere. Blake was 32 at the time of the revolution, and Wordsworth and Coleridge were in their late teens. Byron, on the other hand, was only one, and Keats and Shelley not yet born. For the older generation, the revolution was something exciting, something promising, but also something to resist or lament. They knew a world before and a world after. They saw the excesses of the revolution. They saw the downside. The younger generation knew nothing else, and they became frustrated by the inability of the older poets, in particular Wordsworth and Coleridge, to fully embrace the new. And in all of this societal swirl of poetry and art and freedom and politics and change and resistance to change is the man we're focused on today, George Gordon Byron. Famously described by Lady Carolyn Lamb as mad, bad, and dangerous to know. He packed his 36 years full, becoming world famous. His astonishing career as a poet matched only by his astonishing biographical record. As a breaker of norms, an insatiable lover, a bizarre hedonist, a restless exile, a head-scratching eccentric, a passionate friend, a determined athlete an ardent revolutionary, and in general, one of the greatest embracers of life the world has ever seen. The incomparable Lord Byron, today on The History of Literature. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm Jack Wilson. Very excited to have you here today. Things are getting better, people. They sometimes seem worse or like they're getting worse. 
maybe because of the news, maybe because of things in your personal life, but they are getting better. We have to believe that, or at least I do. And they're getting better here on the History of Literature podcast. We have a good episode with Mike Palindrome coming up soon. That's a fun one, something we can look forward to, a draft. And he's got some other thoughts. It's very fun when I get a message from Mike that he's taking notes on something. Always good to check in with Mike. And here's the other big improvement. Our new Patreon gift-giving program, a machine. It's a gift-giving machine. If you have signed up at patreon.com slash literature for anything from $1 a month to $5 or however much you can give, you are eligible for our free prize giveaway. This month, we're giving away a free History of Literature mug and a copy of a novel by our recent guest, Ronika Dar. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash literature. And as always, your support is much appreciated. So, I'll confess I had this idea for the Byron episode that I've since modified a couple of times, and I'll tell you why. I have this theory of the Beatles. Let's start with them. They themselves were kind of like the romantic poets of another era, come to think of it. I have this theory of the Beatles that you could lengthen everything they did by four, and it would still be astonishing. If I told you that the Beatles took four days to record their first album, Please Please Me, you'd be impressed, right? Four days? It only took four days to record their whole album? Well, they did it in one day. Or, let's say I told you this, that in just one four-year span, they did the following. This, they, they crammed all this into just four years. Ready? They released three albums, Help, Rubber Soul, and Revolver, each of which advanced popular music in some way, and which included classic original songs like Help, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away, Ticket to Ride, Drive My Car, Norwegian Wood, Nowhere Man, Michelle, Girl, In My Life, Taxman, Eleanor Rigby, I'm Only Sleeping, Here, There, and Everywhere, Yellow Submarine, For No One, my favorite song, Good Day Sunshine, Got to Get You Into My Life, and Tomorrow Never Knows. All in just four years. But that was just the albums. They also released some singles in this Miraculous four-year period. Yesterday, We Can Work It Out, Day Tripper, Paperback Writer, Rain. Remember, this is all in four years. Has there ever been a band with a four-year run like this? And they also had a movie come out, their second movie, Help, and they went on tour and played at Shea Stadium, an iconic concert. Not bad, right? You'd say that was a pretty good four-year run, wouldn't you? You might say this is the most incredible four years that any band has ever had, right? Three albums, a tour, all those number one hits, all those classic songs. Except that wasn't four years. It was one year. (laughs) One 12-month period. It's dizzying. You think of a song like Eleanor Rigby and you think... Right, they probably wrote that and recorded it in a few weeks, if not months. All the musicians focused on it for hours at a time. Instead, 
It was Paul writes the song, changes the lyrics once or twice, brings it in. They record the strings in a two-hour session on a single day. Then the Beatles come in the next day, spend seven hours on it. But in that seven-hour period, they also recorded I'm Only Sleeping. (laughs) Another classic song. That's it. Then a month later, Paul comes in and sings one overdub of a line in the chorus. That's it. Eleanor Rigby is done and dusted. The romantic poets are like this. Byron died at 36. Shelley died when he was 29. And poor Keats died when he was 25. 25 years old. What's astonishing about them is how much poetry they were able to write and how many letters, articles, how much of it is first rate. It's enduring. This isn't like a novelist who writes 30 novels, but only one or two are really exceptional. Keats has a full body of work written in a very brief span of time. Better body of work than Shakespeare had by that age. And with Shelley and Byron, it's even more astonishing because of how much else they did. How much went on in their personal lives and their political lives. And Byron's full-on energy. So... My first thought was that I would go through Byron's adult life and just go year by year, pointing out how much he crammed into each one, as I did just now with the Beatles. I still do that a bit. We'll go through some chronology. But what I found when I started digging into this is how interesting it is not to take this compressed, microscopic view, but to turn the telescope around, so to speak, And to look at Byron and the whole history of the Byron family. He didn't come from nowhere. The Byrons had centuries of erratic, transgressive behavior. So, we're going to look at a few of Byron's ancestors. It's a fascinating story. And we're going to look at a few of his heirs, or at least one in particular. His daughter, Ada Lovelace, an extraordinarily gifted mathematician who played a key role in the development of modern computers. And, of course, we have to look at his poetry as well. It's good stuff. It's not as anthologized as any of the other five, with a couple of exceptions, perhaps. But if you read some longer works, you'll see the personality that comes through. And in some ways, he's just as modern as the others. Whew. I'm already a little exhausted just thinking about all that we're going to get into today, but don't worry. It's inspiring, too, and it's a lot of fun. The life and works, the ancestors and heirs of George Gordon Byron, a.k.a. Lord Byron, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. 
Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Byron liked to boast about his aristocratic heritage, but there are not many admirable characters among his predecessors. There are no artists, no poets, no diplomats or scientists or inventors, or other men of distinction. There are a lot of spendthrifts, a lot of rakes, a lot of wastrels. From the moment they arrived in England, the records show the Byrons acquiring land and often getting into disputes or other legal tangles that see them disposing of the land as well, one step ahead of the creditors. Byron's ancestor, Ralph de Baroon, came with William the Conqueror and quickly acquired a lot of lands in Nottinghamshire. In later generations, scooped up land in Derbyshire, Lancashire, Norfolk. The monasteries were dissolved, and the Byrons were there to buy it up. And yet, they were not particularly wise, the way some other families were, in their caretaking of the land. John Byron, who bought land, <laughs> built a big mansion and hosted parties with performances by his resident troupe of actors. We're still a few hundred years before Byron is born now. The Byrons are buying land, supporting the king, naturally, since the king is the one who's allowing them to purchase it. A few of them were knighted. One of them received his knighthood for raising a regiment of cavalry to face Cromwell's troops. He was given strict orders to hold his ground. The entire position of the royalist army depended on him holding the right flank. But in battle, he grew impatient and defied orders, leading a charge. Unfortunately, he led his troops into a marsh where soldiers and horses got stuck and were quickly mowed down by the muskets of the parliamentary forces. The entire north of England was lost. Thanks to Byron. <laughs> and then things started to get strange. The Byrons married into the Chaworth line, which had a reputation for being extravagant and eccentric. They had also, the Byrons had also been marrying one another for some time, which may have led to some of the madness. People have speculated. The next notable Byron was William, born in 1722. He became known as the Wicked Lord. He was Byron's great-uncle, Byron the poet's great-uncle, and his younger brother John was Byron's grandfather. The Wicked Lord displayed every problem of wealth that the Byrons had developed. 
He succeeded into the title of Lord and immediately neglected the land he was now in charge of. Instead, he built a miniature castle where he could throw wild, extravagant parties. He built a couple of forts on a lake and staged naval engagements, including with a cannon, sending servants out to float the boats around according to his orders. The servant, this particular servant, went on to serve Byron the poet. And some have suggested that Byron also had a similar hobby. The wicked lord got into a dispute with a cousin and a neighbor about the best way to hang game. (laughs) The best way to hang game. You would think this would be a reasonable discussion. Minds could differ. Opinions could be diverse on this subject. They could agree to disagree. One would think, learn from one another. You have your way of hanging game, and I have mine. Instead, the wicked lord grew so upset, he plunged his sword through his neighbor's belly, killing him, which sent the wicked lord to the tower, and it led to a verdict of guilty of manslaughter. He was released after paying a fee, but now he was socially tainted, so he took to using a fake name when he went into London. His wife left him, and he ended up carrying on with a servant who bore him an illegitimate son. By now, he was also broke. The years of neglecting his estates having led him into insufferable debts. He tried to redeem himself by marrying off his son William to an heiress, but his son didn't like the choice, so he eloped with his first cousin instead, who was Byron the poet's aunt. Now the father, the wicked lord, furious at his son, the purported heir, shifted from neglecting his property to actively sabotaging it so that his son wouldn't inherit anything other than grief. He cut down forests and slaughtered deer. He signed bad leases, which gave the estate next to nothing for valuable coal mines. And then he got even more erratic. Eventually, he kept a menagerie of crickets, which sometimes escaped in swarms. His decision to ruin his own estate, poisoning the land out of revenge and hatred for his son, the heir, did not go exactly as planned. His son died before he did. His grandson, the next heir, was killed in action. By the time the wicked lord finally died, the heir to all this wretched madness was a young boy living in Aberdeen, our poet. He was ten years old. But let's go back to Byron's direct line. His grandfather, the younger brother of the wicked lord, became an admirable, uh, an admirable, not an admirable, an admiral, an unadmirable admiral, nicknamed Foul Weather Jack for the many storms he'd survived at sea. He was also known for his womanizing ways. He bounced into one notorious affair after another, oblivious to public opinion. Byron later used some of these stories of Foul Weather Jack and some of the rumors about him to populate his poem, Don Juan, or Don Juan, as Byron pronounced it. Byron's father was also in the military after Foul Weather Jack brought him a, bought him a commission 
He served in America in the War of Independence, acquiring the, the nickname Mad Jack along the way. Then he abandoned the army so he could get to his real passion, having affairs and ignoring public opinion. He got married and had a daughter, Augusta, and his wife died, leaving him broke. He went hunting for an heiress wife in Bath. He had large mood swings, high highs and low lows, and he was handsome. He was able to find a woman with a good fortune, Catherine Gordon, a Scottish heiress, and sweep her off her feet. Her relatives hated the match, but she didn't care. Her own line was a lot like the Byron's, full of landowners with eccentric tendencies, crumbling castles, affairs of the heart, and bloody and treacherous deeds. Seekers of passion, hot tempers. <laughs> they were good. A good blending of lines, the Gordons and the Byrons. The two, Catherine and Mad Jack, quickly became known for wild carousing and wasting their money. They started selling off Catherine's lands to pay down debts. Catherine turned on her husband, Mad Jack, and although she took over the care of Byron's daughter by his first wife, Augusta, and although this seems to be a generous act, her bitterness against her husband carried over into the child-raising. And Augusta always remembered her stepmother as being loud and angry. They had to flee creditors a few times. Byron was born with a club foot and had trouble even walking. He viewed this as the greatest disaster of his life. And he blamed the tight-fitting corsets that his mother had worn even during childbirth. There wasn't really a basis for this other than Stories told to him by one of the maids, probably. But this is a perfect metaphor for what Byron's later life and attitude became. His mother, through false delicacy, through strict adherence to societal norms, through fashion, for insisting on following a custom that literally was about tightness and arbitrary restriction, had imposed a cost on the young Byron. Restriction equals disaster and suffering. The decisions to limit one's freedom could lead to destruction of the body. Those are themes that we see in Byron, in his later thinking and in his works. Poor young Byron had several painful surgeries to try to fix the foot. These didn't work, but he could walk eventually, even though some doctors thought he might not. And eventually, he became a powerful swimmer. It's fair to say that he overcame this setback through much determination and conscious effort, although it was a, a pain for him and a source of frustration all of his life. So this was our young Byron, heir of a long line of entitled people, crazy people. Their fortunes ebbed and flowed but they did have a long lineage as aristocrats. He had examples before him of people who did not work for a living and who gained their livelihoods through advantageous marriage. He also had examples before him of people who lived through shame and scandal. Sometimes their fault, but not always. Sometimes those people embraced the scandal. Sometimes they ignored it, but they followed their passions their heart, even if it meant darkening the families or their own personal reputation. 
They were hard scrabbling survivors. His childhood was happy, except for his parents' constant fighting, which led him in later life to turn away from marriage, disfavor it as an institution. But when he suddenly inherited the wicked lord's estate, he had a title, but now a set of crushing responsibilities, centuries of estate ownership, wealth, debt, quarrels, litigation, incest, crimes, scandal, and shame now descended onto the frame of a small boy born with a deformity whose life had already been full of struggle. We'll take a look at what he did to overcome these difficulties after this. So what did Byron do with this fraught inheritance? He assumed the lineage, proud of his ancestral line in spite of everything, but he also continued the eccentricity of his ancestors and the rejection of rules and social norms. And then he turned himself into something new, a poet and a wildly successful one. But that didn't come right away. After his schooling in Scotland and then at Harrow School near Newstead Abbey, the Byron's ancestral home, he went off to Trinity College at Cambridge, where he made friends and became known for his wild behavior, including the keeping of a pet bear. What was he like in these years before he became famous? He loved the poetry of Alexander Pope. He loved the Bible. He was fascinated with Calvinist doctrines of innate evil and predestined salvation. He was passionate about history. He was proud of his estate and his family's coat of arms. He fell in love with a cousin, Margaret, who died, inspiring a passionate dash, as he called it, into poetry. He gave speeches and played sports in spite of his painful foot. Doctors tried one thing after another, including a corrective boot, which he often refused to wear. He had passionate attachments with boys, some of them younger, and he had a sexual affair with his maid. Most of his affairs were with women. That seems to be where he went for his emotional needs, but bisexual seems to be the best descriptor for him throughout his life. Restless, open, driven, those are good ways to describe him as well. Eventually, he put all of his personality into what we now think of as the classic romantic hero. And not just what we now think of, but what was viewed at the time as the romantic figure of the age. Melancholy, brooding, charismatic, possessed by secret guilt. Emily Bronte's Heathcliff is a Byronic hero. So is Charlotte Bronte's Rochester. So is Jane Austen's Mr. Darcy. We see this figure arise throughout literature from then on, including Captain Ahab and Moby Dick, and Claude Frollo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Severus Snape in Harry Potter. Dracula is a Byronic hero. This was a great age for heroes. Remember that Napoleon had taken the continent by storm, literally and in the cultural imagination. Gone was the pomp and circumstance of a stable monarchy, in France at least, replaced by the young, ambitious, 
passionate, and extremely capable Corsican. But let's go back to Byron's years in Cambridge, where he also started writing poems. His first volume of poems, Fugitive Pieces, came out when he was 20. It was privately printed. His literary advisor, a local minister, objected to the frank eroticism, so Byron withdrew it from publication and printed an expurgated version. This version eventually became his first publicly printed volume of poems. It was called Hours of Idleness, and it was not well received. The Edinburgh Review compared the poetry to stagnant water and urged him to give up writing poetry altogether. Byron, however, was not to be discouraged. Instead, he was defiant, and two years later returned fire with a satirical poem called English Bards and Scotch Reviewers. Something happened between Fugitive Pieces and English Bards and Scotch Reviewers. Either Byron matured, or the review inspired some corrective behavior, because his poetry after that got much better. English Bards and Scotch Reviewers is much more passionate, much more careful, and a much better preview of the poetic gifts that mark all of Byron's later works. It should also be noted that the bad review came from the expurgated work. The best and most enlivening lines, the spirit of the earlier poem, was somewhat lost with the self-corrections. It probably was a mistake on Byron's part. In any case, he also started traveling now. He got his degree from Cambridge at age 21 and took off for Portugal, Spain, Malta, Albania, and Athens. There he wrote the first canto of a poem called Child Barun, using his old name, his, his family's old name, Barun, the name of the ancestor who came over with William the Conqueror. Then Byron traveled through Greece and Turkey, swam the Hellespont, as Leander had, returned to England, delivered speeches in the House of Lords. His mother died. He wrote another canto. He had some affairs, one with Lady Caroline Lamb, another with Lady Webster, another with the Countess of Oxford. He changed his cantos from Child Baroon to Child Harold's Pilgrimage and published them. And they were a runaway success. Child Harold's Pilgrimage made Byron's name. It is essentially a poetic journal of his tours through Europe and the Mediterranean, but it's less a travelogue as a description of his state of mind, the world weariness that came in the aftermath of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. One critic calls it, quote, the record of the contemporary quest for moral and intellectual certainty and positive self-assertion. The route for many was through sensation and emotional experience, end quote. Byron, with his new kind of romantic hero, had touched a nerve, Critics loved it. The Edinburgh Review, his old nemesis, recanted his previous assessment of Byron and said Child, Her Child Harold had, quote, a singular freedom and boldness both of thought and expression and a great occasional force and felicity of diction, end quote. It sold out in three days. It went through printing after printing. Byron later said, I awoke one morning and found myself famous. Fame suited Byron. He went on a spree now, traveling through Europe, engaging in deep friendships and passionate, if ephemeral, affairs, trying to make sense of the world, and writing more poetry. 
His poems borrowed from Pope and Spencer, finding the style that suited him, but he fills the formal requirements of his poetic structures with invention, flights of fancy, sly winking nods at poetry and at himself as a poet. He's extremely engaging, hell-bent on enjoying life, being true to oneself, being a knowing and wised-up observer of the world as it actually is. He rejects falsity and unnecessary social conventions. He's a man living on the edge, fearlessly leading the way. It's an intoxicating mix. In three years, Byron wrote and published six extremely popular tales in verse, bringing him increasing fame and fortune. He was getting mixed reviews now, with critics finding some of the versifying vague and melodramatic or immoral, but it was generally recognized that Byron's erotic tales in exotic climes had fashioned a new kind of hero, the sensitive, meditative vagabond, possessed by pride, defiance, restlessness, alienation, revenge, remorse, moodiness, but also a kind of honor, altruism, courage, and pure love for the right woman. His half-sister, Augusta Lay, had a daughter that some believe was Byron's. Byron himself became engaged to Annabella and had a daughter named Augusta Ada. Remember that one? We'll come back to Ada later. Byron's wife, Annabella, left him then after one year of marriage. Byron himself now. We've come to the part where he's 28 years old, famous, scandal-ridden, already been labeled mad, bad, and dangerous to know by Lady Caroline Lamb. He left England for the last time. He arrives in Geneva and meets Percy Shelley and his wife, Mary Shelley. He spends the summer with them and Claire Claremont, with whom he has an affair. He travels to Venice and starts another affair with his landlord's wife. Meanwhile, his daughter Allegra is born to Claire Claremont. Byron's not there, though. He's off to Rome and then back to Venice, where he has yet another affair with the wife of a Venetian baker. He's shedding England now altogether. He sells Newstead Abbey, the ancestral home of the Byrons, and he also starts publishing some more of the Child Herald cantos, like sequels of popular movies. He finds a new form to use, Ottava Rima, for a poem called Beppo, which he later uses in Don Juan, which I think is his masterpiece. Byron's famous for some shorter poems that can be easily anthologized, like She Walks in Beauty and Will Go No More A-Roving. But for me, if you really want to understand Byron and enjoy Byron, you should look at one of the longer poems. The journals and verse, the quest tales with the compelling narrators, and wild tales of adventure and intellectual curiosity and satire. And just enjoy the mind of Byron set free like a bird escaped from its cage. In order to get the full picture of who Byron was, Don Juan has that. It takes the tale of the wild libertine from the point of view of Don Juan himself. He's not a womanizer. He's an innocent man easily seduced by women. But there's more to it than just the tales of his scrapes and sexual encounters. Byron's engaged with the world in this poem. His structure lets him do more than just follow Don Juan around. Above all, it's a really fun read. So, let's talk about the structure. Ottava Rima. What is it? 
stands a based form of poetry, eight lines of 10 or 11 syllables with a rhyme scheme of A, B, A, B, A, B, C, C. The CC is the key for Byron. Like Shakespeare in his sonnets, he uses that final rhyming couplet to capture or comment upon or reverse the lines that came before. Otava Rima started in Tuscany and was used by the troubadours in the late 13th and early 14th centuries, and it became famous by practitioners like Boccaccio and Ariosto in his poem Orlando Furioso. And then Byron, who borrowed upon all this, borrowed from all this history to turn it into something better and more modern, a mock heroic irony. The form let him take this kind of attitude or stance toward his material. Here's a taste. Here's how he introduces his hero. Brave men were living before Agamemnon and since, exceeding valorous and sage, a good deal like him too, though quite the same none, but then they shone not on the poet's page, and so have been forgotten. I condemn none, but can't find any in the present age fit for my poem, that is, for my new one. So, as I said, I'll take my friend Don Juan. Here he is going after the previous generation of poets. Remember how he loved the elders, especially Pope, but he didn't like Wordsworth, Coleridge, and especially their contemporary Robert Southey. He thought those poets, he was like some of his fellow poets in the younger generation, thought that those poets had become part of the establishment, that they'd sold out. And Byron also thought that Southey had spread a rumor about Byron and Shelley forming a league of incest, that's in quotes, by having sex with Mary Shelley and her stepsister. In any case, here he is. He says, Thou shalt believe in Milton Dryden Pope, Thou shalt not set up Wordsworth, Coleridge, Southey, because the first is crazed beyond all hope, the second drunk, the third so quaint and mouthy. <laughs> oh, if you love literature, you love this stuff. When a, <laughs> when a titan like Byron takes on his, his near contemporaries, Wordsworth and Coleridge, Southey... <laughs> The first is crazed beyond all hope, the second drunk, the third so quaint and mouthy. Here's here's Byron producing eight neat lines that make you think. It's almost like John Donne or one of the metaphysical poets. Such a great, confiding voice, the saddened voice of a close comrade in arms. But word this is from Don Juan as well. But words are things, and a small drop of ink falling like dew upon a thought produces that which makes thousands perhaps millions think. Tis strange, the shortest letter which man uses instead of speech may form a lasting link of ages to what straits old time reduces frail man when paper, even a rag like this, survives himself, his tomb, and all that's his. It goes on, but why then publish? There are no rewards of fame or profit when the world grows weary. I ask in turn, why do you play cards? Why drink? Why read? To make some hour less dreary. It occupies me to turn back regards on what I've seen or pondered, sad or cheery. And what I write I cast upon the stream to swim or sink, 
I have had at least my dream. All this packed into Don Juan plus a tale of a great swashbuckling adventurer. Don Juan himself making his way through place after place, scrape after scrape, love after love. He encounters shipwreck, slavery, war, and illness, gaining worldly wisdom and discretion. It's a remarkable poem, packed with Byron's observations on hypocrisy, love, war, tyranny, literary characters, previous poets, humor, and on and on. It's a modern epic and still highly readable. When you read a line like, Hail Muse, etc., <laughs> you know that you're in the playful hands of someone enjoying the practice of writing poetry. Goethe praised Don Juan as, quote, a work of boundless energy, end quote. The first line of the poem is, I want a hero. But after finding that the modern age doesn't provide a true one, Byron will therefore take our ancient friend, Don Juan. Byron had an insanely busy last few years. He was writing furiously, though his cantos grew more and more scandalous. His longtime publisher found them so outrageously shocking in their treatment of marriage, monarchy, chastity, and lawful government that he refused to publish them. Byron just went on with someone else, published them anyway with a different publisher. He started writing about topics like the Englishwoman and Napoleon and other grand thematic topics that he could organize his poems around, fitting all of his lines into the structure that he had going, the tale of Don Juan. Byron met up with the Shelleys again in Pisa this time. His daughter Allegra died at the age of five, tragically. Shelley died in 1822 in a boat called the Don Juan. He had a book of Keats's poetry in his pocket. Byron heard this news and said, I never met a man who wasn't a beast in comparison to him. Speaking of Shelley. After Shelley's badly decomposed body washed ashore, he was cremated on the beach in accordance with some local quarantine regulations. Byron came for the funeral, but he couldn't stand it. He couldn't bear it. And he left the beach early. Although Byron was a great friend of the Shelleys, he and Keats had a more troubled relationship. Byron was kind of a snob, and Keats had grown up poor. Keats thought Byron's work was overrated, slavish, and unoriginal. Byron dismissed Keats as a cockney poet. Keats always struggled to overcome his origins, and he assumed that Byron had had it easy because of his birthright. Once he read a favorable review of Byron's work, and he said to a friend, Quote, you see what it is to be six foot tall and a lord. End quote. Byron admired some of Keats's work and thought it showed some promise. Keats never seemed to get over the idea that Byron was writing flash poetry, something too fast, too easy, too popular. Byron was to live another two years after Shelley's death. He published more cantos of Don Juan, which was left unfinished. He mounted an expedition to help the Greeks gain independence from the Turks, contributing money and medical supplies, uniforms, and helmets. He himself sailed from Genoa to Cephalonia, planning to join the cause, which he eventually did, loaning 4,000 pounds to the Greek fleet and joining the leader in a red military uniform, to the enthusiastic shouts and salutes of the Greek patriots. 
A few months after Byron's 36th birthday, he caught a chill after being out riding during a heavy rain. Did not help that his doctors treated him by extensive bleeding, which sapped his strength. He fell into a coma on Easter Sunday. The next evening, during a violent thunderstorm, he died. It was said that his death helped unite the Greek factions and gain support for their cause. The Greeks won their independence within five years. He had a few legacies. His poetry, of course, like all great poets, he lives on in his verse. His spirit, the spirit he inspired, lived on as well. As he himself predicted in Child Herald, there was something about his essence that couldn't be extinguished by mere mortality. These are the lines. But I have lived and have not lived in vain. My mind may lose its force, my blood its fire, and my frame perish even in conquering pain. But there is that within me which shall tire torture in time and breathe when I expire. And there's another legacy, his daughter, Ada Lovelace. She was born to Byron and his wife, Annabella. She never knew him. She was a month when he separated from her mother. And although he wrote poems lamenting the separation and expressing his longing for her, for getting to know her, his, how he missed her, he never returned. He died when she was eight. But she was fascinated by him, engrossed herself in his history, and had an unusual legacy. <laughs> Things went uh, kind of in an unexpected direction. Rather than point her toward poetry, her mother was convinced that Byron was insane. And to avoid this fate befalling her daughter, she encouraged her daughter to study mathematics and logic and science. Ada went on to write what many consider to be the first computer program, an algorithm to be carried out by a machine. She thought broadly about what computers might do, not just looking at crunching numbers, which was where many of her peers were focused and where they stopped. Instead, she asked questions about what a computer and computing power might mean for individuals and society as they sought to collaborate with one another and find new uses for technology. Today, in tribute, the programming language Ada is named for her. She died at 36, like her father and like her grandfather, Mad Jack. At her request, she was buried next to her father in Nottinghamshire. In 1969, Byron was given a memorial at Poets Corner, nearly 150 years after his death, and joining him to his fellow later romantics, Keats and Shelley, who were given their memorials in 1954. The establishment poets Wordsworth, Coleridge, and Southey had received their memorials a hundred years earlier. But perhaps that only tells us how the younger generation was ahead of its time. And at least in Byron's case, it took several generations for the shocked elites to catch up with Byron and the scandalized public that eagerly bought his books in large numbers. With morality issues cleared out of the way, the society that once rejected the man as mad, bad, and dangerous to know has put that condemnation in its past, and now ranks Byron as perhaps the greatest epic poet in English since Milton. And indeed, in the 400 years since Paradise Lost, 
We have Byron's Don Juan, and we have maybe Ezra Pound's Cantos, and we don't have anything else comparable. If you ask me which is the best, I'll say Paradise Lost. If you ask me which is the most intellectual, fasc- intellectually fascinating, I might go with Pound's Cantos. But if you ask me which one is the most fun to read, which one has the most energy, and which one makes you want to swim in the sea in the morning, write poetry in the afternoon, and stay up late with friends, talking about love and art and life, there's only one true one. It's Don Juan. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. I think all of this is because I'm getting ready for a trip to Italy with a stop in Switzerland where I will visit Geneva. Just like our hero of today's episode, will I be a Byronic hero? I don't know. Did the Byronic hero travel with his wife, his two children, and his (laughs) in-laws? Did Byron's heroes make a list of all the electronics they had to take along with all the battery packs and chargers and converters. I'll be Byronic inwardly, I suppose, in spirit, if not indeed. If you'd like to send me an email, you can do so at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. You can also find us at historyofliterature.com, jackwilson.com, and on Twitter at thejackwilson. All those Jacks are spelled with an E, by the way. J-A-C-K-E. My thanks to all my Patreons. Get ready for the gift-giving. We have a novel by our special guest, Rana Kadar, and a special History of Literature podcast mug going out to Patreons. You can still sign up at patreon.com slash literature to be eligible. We'll have new prizes next month as well. I'm Jack Wilson. As always... Thank you for listening, and as always, we'll see you next time.